Would you turn with me you, in the back of your bulletin, but also to Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 31 is our text. I didn't really look in the bulletin if we have a page number. If, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to take one of the black Bibles. I don't have the page number this morning, but if you turn there, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those black Bibles home with you, put your name in it and use it and read it. And let it be a help to you. We believe that the Bible changes lives because it is God's word. And he actually speaks through it in very special ways. We also believe that God uses other people to help us understand God's word. Because sometimes it can be very hard. And so we want to help you. Romans 8 verse 31 is where we're going to start this morning. I'm going to read nine verses in just a minute. What type of things are against you this Will you think about your life and what you're facing this morning and ask the question, what things are against you? Is it school? Is it the difficulty at work? Is it that one coworker? Or is it that your child in your home? Or is it your parents? Or is it the facing school or that bully in school? Is it, is it that addiction? Is it yourself? You're just fed up with yourself. You just, you're getting in your own way. Is that against you? Does it feel like God is against you? Is it your health and your body? It is the wave after wave of discouragement and frustration that is against you. Maybe you're coming here and you say, I can't think it's against me. It's my past. It's what's going on in my present. Well, this morning I want to begin a series of four Sundays. If the Lord wills, between now and the end of September, the next four Sundays, I want to preach on nine verses. Nine verses that are meant to change our lives. Not because I am going to impact them in such an amazing way that they will change our lives, but it's because they are God's Word and they can and I pray will change our lives. They will change our lives so that when we go through the deep valleys of death, the truths that are in these nine verses will, will so bring us to an anchoredness. We would be so anchored into a glorious God that... Though we will shake, we will not tumble and fall because we are rooted in the God of these nine verses. You see, these are nine verses about God. And nine verses that face the reality of a painful world that is against us. Nine verses that force you and me to know more experientially, really, practically, in application, what the love of God is meant to be for us in Jesus Christ. Nine verses that are for the true Christian believer. Nine verses that speak to the grace of God and even more so, importantly, to the God of all grace. So would you look with me at verses one through, not 31 through 39. It's the, the ending paragraph of Romans 8. This morning we're going to particularly spend time on the first verse. 
But let's read all nine of them. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Is it possible that Jesus right now is interceding for us? Jesus is right now praying for you and me in heaven. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. O Lord, praise be to you for the truths that are in found in these words, give us eyes and ears to both see and hear and apply to our lives, not only this morning, but this month and this year. In Jesus' name, amen. What then shall we say to these things? Paul ends this chapter or begins this paragraph with. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Paul is referring to the verses before. For those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. And all whom he predestined, he called. And whom he called, he justified. And all he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to all these things? Believer, in the midst of all your guilty conscience, there is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. He has given you this Holy Spirit who will help you now live. And He will help you pray because you're not going to know how you can pray as you ought, but the Spirit will groan in your spirit with groanings too deep for words. And oh, you will feel like it's so far from this. But that spirit is going to give you a spirit of adoption as sons by which you will cry, Father, God, I need your help. And the spirit will testify in your spirit that you are his children. And he has not left you alone, but is going to work in your life. And he will securely hold you to the end. What shall we say to these things. Romans 8 is maybe the peak 
of the entire book of Romans, which some people will say that if you were to take the Bible and make it into a mountain, a landscape of a mount, just a mountainscape, as you look at the landscape of the mountains, the grandeur, the Himalayans of the Bible, where some of the most beautiful mountaintops are Isaiah 40 and God's grandeur, and you see certain Psalms, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Oh, that's a beautiful, glorious mountaintop of, of comfort and treasure to the Christian believer. At the top of that mountain, that, that mountainscape, we would see Romans 8. We would see first the book of Romans And then Romans 8. And maybe at the very top, we would see these nine verses. But the way to understand these nine verses is to understand the rest of Romans 8 and to understand the rest of Romans. And so I'm going to bring some of that out this morning. But I encourage you to, I desperately plead with you as a pastor, would would you, alongside of your regular Bible reading, Or if you don't have a Bible reading plan, with God's help, take the Bible reading plan that you have in your bulletin and read through Romans this month. Spend extra time. If you follow that plan, you'll be reading Romans 8 every week. You'll read these verses a few times every week. And you'll read through the rest of Romans and start to be thinking over some of these things I'm going to be sharing with you this morning. What I want to do over the next four weeks in these nine verses is to meditate with you. To, to take in, it's what Gus shared with us last week, to treasure, to taste the tastiness, the deliciousness of God's truths, and to just, to just to bring it into our mind and thought and not let it go. And to, to do what J.I. Packer in Knowing God tells us to do, the, to, to take God's word, put it upon our mind, and humbly like sit before it. Let the Bible... Humble us. Let these verses roll over us and let us contemplate them over and over again. And so this week, I'm going to ask you to take 10 verse, ten words. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? God, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me? God, are you for me? And if you're for me, what does that really mean? And what does that mean about all the things that I answered at the beginning when I said, who is against me or what's against me? If God is for us, who can be against us? Next week, we're going to meditate on verse 32. And how he will now with that God graciously give us all things. But this week, if God is for us, who can be against us? John Piper describes these verses and especially this chapter. And he says this, the design of God in this chapter is to give you and I such a deep, firm, unshakable, God-wrought, Blood brought security in God's all-conquering love that in all the kinds of sufferings that you and I will face, we will not curse God, but we will trust God. Some of you, but not all of you know, just two weeks ago, actually it was two weeks ago on Sunday, Molly's brother, my brother-in-law went in to get a spinal tap. And Monday morning they said, you got a really serious cancer in your body. He's 33, he's got four little kids. And I have observed over the last two weeks a 
all-conquering love of God that had been built over decades in his life as he learned to feed upon God's word. Oh, he's hurting and he's crying and he's stunned and so is his dear wife, Kendall. But I've seen how the all-conquering love, that blood-bought security that they have, come out in ways that are awe-inspiring and beautiful. And I've seen it in so many of you. When you face the doctor's report or the news of a child that is so troubling or the painful experiences of life and you say, but I know God is for me and I've seen God for me so that when all around my soul gives way, he is my hope and stay. So, if God is for me, us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. You know what that is? It's, it's a question that says, you already know the answer. It's already assumed. But I want you to, I said the question because I want you to think of the truth that's embedded in these verses. If God is for us, then this is what Paul means, since God really is for us, and if he really is, then no one can ultimately or successfully be against us in the end. Now, to better understand the weight and the full weight of this promise that is implied in these ten verses, ten words that I'm inviting you to meditate on, not, this mor- not only this morning, but this week, I want to ask three questions and answer these three questions. One, who or what is against us? Secondly, who is against us? God for? That's a really important question. If, if God is for us, is God really for me? And who is this God who says he's for us or might be for us? And what does that really mean that God is for us? So number one, who or what is against us? us. The point of this question is not to say, Since God is for us, all your enemies are gone. That's not the point of this question. The point of this question assumes that you're going to be bombarded with enemies. If you don't think that there's something against you today, my job as a Christian preacher is to say there are a lot of things against you. Sin and Satan and your own sinful nature, the flesh. If you're not a believer, God is against you. And yet the Christian message that I get to proclaim to you is, he doesn't have to be anymore because of what he did with his son. And there's a good news that he can take people that he's against. And because of his free gift, he comes and you reconciles you so he's no longer against you but for you. But we have enemies. He is not saying, because God is for you, no more enemies. Your experience tells you this. Opposition is a fact, J.I. Packer says. The Christian who's not conscious of being opposed had better watch himself because he's in danger. It's unrealism. It's, there, it's no place in the Christian discipleship. In fact, watch out for failure if you think you have no enemy. 
So who are the enemies that are against us? I already began listing them. If we are a Christian, our still our greatest enemy is our own sin. It's the enemy of our soul. We learn if you were to read, and I said the way to Romans 8 is actually through Romans 1 through 7. You won't get the full punch until you understand how deep we are sinners and the wages of sin is death. Sin brings with it lust and covetousness. We desire things that we shouldn't desire, and it is suicidal to our lives. Pornography, addictions, slavery, envy, gossip, disobedience to parents and others. He brings up in Romans 1. You want to know some other enemies we face? Have you faced the enemies of feeling guilty this week or shame? Have you felt the enemy of feeling of pain? It's an enemy because on the path towards obedience to God, to trust Him, to praise Him, to give thanks to Him, to love Him, that pain has just been an enemy keeping you. Maybe the pain and abuse of others in your life in the past. I know it's come. Death is an enemy. And the fear of death can be an enemy. He brings that up in Romans 8. Satan is an enemy who wages war against your soul and mine. He tempts us. He accuses us. Did you notice in this passage, these nine verses, he seems to have a who in mind. Who can be against us, not just what is against us. And who is to condemn? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall separate you from the love of God? I'll tell you what, Satan wants to do all of that. He wants to take you like he tried to take Peter and sift you like wheat and make you useless. There's plenty against us. Paul, Paul's not saying God's for you. There's no enemies. Whew, that's good. He's not saying that. In fact, if you read further, he's going to say, you got enemies at your left and right if you're going to be faithful as a Christian. You're going to be persecuted all the day long. We'll be like sheep that are, go to the slaughter. Paul was beheaded for his faith. He had enemies. He was slandered even by Christians in the book of Corinthians. He was being slandered. In Philippians, they were, they were preaching the gospel to make it harder on the apostle Paul. He had enemies against him. And yet he was able to say that in the sword that cuts off your head or pierces your heart, I, I think he means to imply this, in the peril that sweeps your family away and leaves you alone, in the nakedness that shames you, or the rape of the prison yard, in the famine that leaves you and your bloated children, bones draped to the skin, there's famine, in the persecution that blocks all your professional advances and burns your houses, in the book of Hebrews that was taking place, in the distress or calamity that leaves you paraplegic or takes all your life savings, in the tribulation that wrings your soul till you wonder if every drop of faith will be squeezed out of it. He's for you, and you will be more than conqueror if you know this God and are rooted and understand what it means that he's for you. You see, one of our greatest problems is that God is against us. If we are not united to him through Jesus Christ, 
And the book of Romans makes it very clear that our greatest against us is actually God and His wrath against all sin. But the hinge of whether He's going to be for us, which leads to my next question and the next point is, is He enemies? What is it in your life that would keep you from trusting and praising and clinging to God and living how God wants you to live? Those are your enemies, and they're going to be against you. And I, as, I've, as I've thought at this stage of my life at 43, what is the biggest against Daniel? Among all the other things, I would have to say, Daniel is against me. Daniel's sin, Daniel's flesh, Daniel's pride, Daniel's battle against the flesh. Just like Paul would say in Romans 7, I'm a believer now and I'm committed to holiness. And when I started committing to holiness, man, I just realized how full of the flesh I am. And it's hard to do what I want to do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do it. Oh, wretched man that I have. I need God's grace. And Romans 8 says, God's grace is here because I am for you. So you got enemies who's against you. They're there. Face it. You're going to warfare this week. We're, we are to meant to be in warfare arm to arm, linked arm in arm, helping each other in your family and as a church. So the second question is, who is God for? He says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, it's pretty important to know if God is for us. To whom does God's security come against all other enemies? And the answer is this. To all those that he has covenantally committed to through Jesus Christ. It's a big phrase. All those who he is covenantally committed to through Jesus Christ. The gospel of Romans 1 through 7 that brings us to where we are today. Would you please listen because some of you may have grown up in a Christian church have prayed a prayer and asked Jesus in your heart, but you really have not been born again and have been converted. Churches are filled with non-converted attenders who think they're saved. Romans 1 gives us the clear gospel. I want to explain to you who God is for. Romans 1 answers that in chapters 1 through 3 where he says, he's, it's the one who sees he or she as a desperate, their desperate need because they know that he or she is a sinner, a deep sinner, a big sinner, and in desperate need of forgiveness. And Romans 1 through 3 make it clear that we must abandon all of our hope in ourself or our own attempts, because there's none righteous, no, not one. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we cannot save ourselves in any way. Have you come to the point where you've abandoned all hope in your attempts to be made right with God because you can't and you need a Savior? But more than that, Romans 4 and 5 make it clear that God is for the people who believe and have faith by simply trusting in the promise of God. A promise that seems too good to be true that forgiveness and God's righteousness comes onto us as a gift. We call it grace. And it was purchased by God through the blood of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And to everyone who believes or casts themselves on Jesus and calls on the name of the Lord, claiming what he did, he's my savior. I can't save myself. I trust you and I want you. 
I can't do it myself. I cling to you. We, like Abraham, have faith, and it's accounted on to us as righteousness. Those are the type of people that God is for. And here's a mark. This doesn't earn our way to God being for us. But when those first two things, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, I can't save myself. And there's a promise, and it's too good to be true. I received the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord, and He's now my Savior. I realize I no longer belong to myself. We're going to baptize six to eight people in a couple weeks. When you were baptized, you were baptized into His death. It was a picture of you died, your old self died. That means you're yielding yourself to live a new life. And just like you rose out of the waters and Jesus rose from the dead, so you are to live in a newness of life that he gives you by the Spirit. You see, the third point that Paul's assuming is God is for those that have surrendered their lives to Jesus by faith and now said, I I don't belong myself. I'm going to offer myself, Romans 12, as a living sacrifice. He is mine, and I want to live for him, and I want to be holy. I want to follow him. He's my father now, and I want to be like, I want to follow dad and please him. Jesus is my big brother now, and I want to be like my big brother, and I want to follow him. But Romans is also real realistic, because Paul says those that start, to start that life of, now I want to be holy, now I want to live for him, are all going to face what Paul faced. It's hard. And in fact, I realized how much of a sinner. I thought I was a sinner when I got saved. One year, two year, 20 years into it, I realized I'm much worse than I ever thought I was. I need the gospel renewed every day. Paul said in Romans 7, there is a battle of the flesh battling. Jesus is a conqueror over it all. And he's going to say, you must cling to the truths and the provision that I give you. You see, God is for all those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, have surrendered themselves to follow him as Lord, and realize that their life does not exist for their own comfort or their best life now or for the American dream, but they have been called to follow Jesus Christ. You see, God is for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. You know what? You and I do not love God prior to our salvation. Loving God was not the way we got God to actually be for us. But we were called in a very special way if we are saved. And we miraculously, because of God doing the miracle, answered the call. And we came to him by faith and repented of our sins. Because God ahead of time predestined that we would be conformed to the image of his son. We would be made like Jesus. Hard for us to understand, amazing. Is that you? Is God for you? Have you come to agree with God that your sin is so bad that you need a savior? That apart from yourself, you could never save yourself. If you haven't, please do that today. If you felt feel your heart warm, welling up saying, I see that. I, I believe that truly for the first time in a new way. Call upon the name of the Lord. Do you believe the promise that God forgives and justifies you only based on the merit of his son dying on the cross and being raised in your stead?
And because he saved you, are you, brother and sister, now sitting here committed to yielding yourself to him? Even though you may not feel the victory, you know you're called to this battle. You're called to this new life. And you're not going to give up because you will follow that new master for thick or thin. Is your life now about comfort, earthly security, living your best life now, the American dream? Or have you taken up the cross to follow Christ? A life of sacrifice and surrender. That is to whom these passages are for. I love what John Piper said about this passage. He says, the design of this passage that we're going to ponder, God is for us. The design of this passage is not to add eternal security to a life devoted to earthly comfort. That's not our calling. The design of this promised eternal security, that's what we're going to see in these nine verses. There's eternal security for us. It is meant to free us to live lives not devoted to earthly comfort, but to give you and I a freedom to sacrifice and give ourselves to others, to live for not for earthly treasures, but to heavenly treasures because we are so secure, we don't have to live for these things. We have, some, we have our eyes fixed upon in these nine verses, anchor us to that grace and that God of all grace. Of which I want to just end with. The God of all grace that will get you through your mother's death. Or your child's devastating and maybe months or decades long illness. Or the cancer. Or the difficult marriage. Or the difficult parents. Or the difficult school year. Or the bullying or the abuse of your past, or whatever else it may be, including your own monsters of sin and addiction and pain. Who is this God who's for us? And what does it really mean that he's for me and you? I, I don't think we get it. I don't think I've, as I've, I've studied and pondered and meditated on this, I just pray God just... Help me to get it. Help me to possess my possessions. Help Faith Church to possess their possessions. That's an old phrase, overused sometimes. But we've been given possession of these promises. Help us to actually possess them. And not just let them sit dormant. Who is this God that is for us? And what does it mean he's for us? So let me sum it up. It's in your notes, the back page of your bulletin, because it's in a long sentence. That I, I, I just, I wanted to unpack that if you had that, and if you don't have it, your bulletin, you say, hey, can you text that to me this week? Or it's going to probably be on our website with the, under sermons notes. But it is so important is when I keep going here, I go, thank you, God. Thank you, God. If you get anything, you'd get this, this God. He's for you. Who is this God? Listen to this. God is the only sovereign provider and protector protector, and he's covenantly committed, covenantally committed forever to bring about the greatest good to those who are in Christ. Namely, what is that good? Their transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ to the praise of his name. I want to to say, that's a lot of words. I want it in writing and I want you to see that. God is the only sovereign God. Basically, in less words... 
Who's the God for you? An all-powerful provider and protector. And an all-powerful provider and protector who is committed forever. Others might not be committed forever to you. Others can't commit to you forever because they may die, but God can commit to you forever to be your provider and your protector. And he's committed to actually bring about your greatest good. But your greatest good is defined by him, and he knows what's good. Our greatest joy and happiness and purpose is only found in him. And that good is him making us like his son, Jesus, which you find in Romans 8.29. You see, this God is sovereign. He predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies, and he says, nothing will stop me from whom I'm for. This sovereign provider works all things for good. Verse 28, he works every little thing for good. We're going to see about that more next week. All things for good. And therefore, because he's working all things for good, he will, provide, he will protect you from anything that is truly bad in your life. But you got to trust him for it because bad things will look really bad in your life and you can't do anything for it. And yet you have to know God is for me. He is my sovereign provider and protector. And you might feel, I don't have enough to meet my need today. And he's going to say, I will always provide everything you truly need. I am your provider. All things are for your good. I will not spare any good thing. And if I have spared something, you didn't ultimately need it. For your truest joy and good. This sovereign God declares to you and I in Romans 8. If I had time for us to slowly work through Romans 8, we would see he declares, the sovereign provider and protector gives you a new status. All of you, if you've been saved, he says, no condemnation. You will stand before a judge and he'll say, not guilty and completely righteous because of Jesus Christ. And that sovereign almighty one is infinitely adequate because, and you, are, you and I are not adequate. Thank God our adequacy rests in God and not us. And Paul's going to say, God's for you. So your inadequacy can't be against you because God is for you. And this God, the God who made a covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament and all of Abraham's offspring became Israel, and the God who does not lie, and actually brought a baby from the womb of a dead womb, like in Sarah, when she was 90 years old, to fulfill God's promise. That promise-keeping God says, I'm for you. That promise-keeping God that said to Abraham in the midst of all of his fears, do not fear, for I am with you, I am your God, says in covenantal language, I am for you. That's what this language is. It's a covenant language. It is, it is the language when God says, I will not let you go. You are my people. I am committed to you. That's why I say you're, he's a covenantly committed language. That's the sovereign God for us. No other spouse that you're covenantally committed to if you're married could keep this kind of covenant because they will die. This God is the God 
who is for his people, who stops the sun in battle if he needs to, who sends fiery serpents, who provides rocks and manna in the wilderness to provide, who defeats Goliath with a little boy named David, and who God promises to raise up his name through that same David to begin kingdoms that would never be destroyed. This is the God who bowed great King Nebuchadnezzar so low that he lifted himself above God, when he lifted himself above God, and God said, I'm going to make who destroyed the mighty Philistines and disciplined the Israelites when they rebelled. This is the God who is a sovereign provider and protector who makes a promise and he will keep it forever. And he will bring about your greatest good so that everything that you would answer that is against you today, God says, if if you're mine and I'm for you, I will turn it for your good. Your sin, I'm going to work to humble you, to bend you before me, and you will be made like me even more because I am at work and I I will not waste. That is the God who's for my brother-in-law Bjorn as he faces chemo directly tapped into his hole in his skull and in his chest for his spine. That is, the God who is for him and for you in your affliction and trouble. And it takes faith, brother and sister, I know. I, I don't know some of the pains that you've experienced. And I thank God that I've seen faith, this kind of faith that God is for you, come out in your life. It is these ten words that if God is for me, then who can be against us? Is the foundation that you and I need to build upon So then when the storms of life will come, we will not shake. But we will look back and we will have said, he has shown me his faithfulness in the past. I will trust him when I don't see the light. It is this God who is for us that is revealed in verses like Psalm 23, leading his people with his rod and staff in the valley of the shadow of death, our shepherd. It is this God who says, Goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, even though you're in the valley of the shadow of death. It is this God whom the sons of Korah will sing in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a never-present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear when the earth gives way. You feel that when the earth gives way in your life? When the, it feels like the, the trials of your life, it's like the mounds are coming into, into the sea. It's just everything is torn apart. Come behold the works of the Lord, he says. Be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is my fortress. It is the God who says, you want to know who against you? I want to know who's for me. He is the God in Isaiah 40, 10 through 31, who measures the waters in his hand, and all the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Everything is small compared to him. He breathes and they shake. He controls all things. His ways are not hidden from us. He is never late, and he never missed a thing. And he is always working for our good. He is in Psalm 56, the one where David in the midst of trial will say, but as for me, I know that God is for me. And so I will pray to him 
and I will praise him, and I will pay my vows to him, and I will, when I am afraid, I will trust in him. Oh, that we would get to know our God. That's what we need. I need to know my God better, and you need to know your God better. The God who is covenantally committed to you through Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian and have been saved. Through Jesus Christ, he covenantally committed to you that forever, with his sovereign, he's mighty, nothing stopping him, will provide and protect you so that you will be made like Jesus. You see, his goal isn't to just pad your life with comfort. It is to make you like Jesus. Your suffering, your financial loss, your relational pain, your wrestling with sin is meant to make you like Jesus. Because God knows in the end, that is what will bring you the greatest possible joy, fulfillment. So let me conclude with this. Since God is for us, yes, the sovereign, the only sovereign provider and protector who promises in a covenant in Jesus, he will forever work for your and I truest good and make us like himself. This meal we're going to take right now is a testament to that. If God is for me, that means, what does that mean about the enemies that you face? It means I must trust in him that he will prevail against all my enemies. Is God for you? If so, are you living as though he is for you? Are you trusting him today? Are you possessing your possessions of security and satisfaction that is only found in the fact that God is for you and not against you? Let us take this communion. In fact, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up to get ready for, and I'm going to invite... The deacons if, that are going to help serve, you can come sit here on these front rows. And I want to transition, and I want to connect communion. So, I said let's meditate on if God for us, who can be against us. Here's God's given way for us to remind ourselves through symbols that we actually take into our bodies. We're going to eat and drink as God instructed. I invite you, if you're visiting, to take part in this if you have truly recognized that you are such a sinner that you need a Savior and you've repented of your sins and you have claimed and accepted the true promise that's only in Jesus Christ and have put your faith in Him. And we believe that if you've done that, you need to follow Him in baptism, which is the mark of an initiation into the body of Christ. That is, it's almost like putting the wedding ring on it's God's plan of doing that. And then we invite you to take of communion. And, and we, but what we're going to do here is we take of this. We're going to take bread and we're going to take juice. And Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body that was broken for you. I, I, was, I was delivered over for you to have life. And this is my blood that was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So, I want to apply this to our sermon right now into our lives. If God is for us, who can be against us? And next week we're going to see this in verse 32. You want, to, you want to know the surest reason why we know that God is for us? Because he did not spare his son. But he delivered him up for us. I can't believe, I can't imagine 
delivering my son for your sins. I couldn't do it. Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, if this cup could pass before me, please make it pass before me, God, but, but not your will, but my, not my will, but your will be done. When Jesus was doing that, I believe he was actually fulfilling all righteousness because it was God's will for him to actually ask for the cup to be passed by. The cup represented the alienation from God because of sin. It meant actually participating in being separated from God on the cross. Always wants to be with God. And so it was only right for him to say, I don't want this. It wasn't that he didn't want pain. He didn't want the alienation from God. And he said, spare this from me, God. And God said, no, I will not spare it from you. Because you see, God said, I did not, Paul said, he did not spare his own son. But he gave him up for us. So do you think I'm against you if I did that for you? You want to doubt whether I'm for you? I did not spare my own son, but I delivered him up for us all, for you all. So how will I not graciously give you all things? So when we come up, let us take that bread and let us take that juice. And then you're going to, t- you're going to make two lines. You're going to come take each and then go back to your seat. And I'll, I'll lead you in taking it, eating it. But as you do that, and as you're walking here, You can look at one another and go, you can think in terms of he didn't spare his son for her and for me. He's for me. Whatever that means this week, he's for me. My temptations, he's for me. My trials, he's for me. He's going to help me. He gave me this to remind me he's for me. He's for me. Not for my comfort. That that would be so short-sighted. He's for my eternal comfort. He's for my eternal growth. He's for my joy everlasting. He's for my children, that they would know him forever. He's for us. So let's give thanks for his being for us on the cross. Oh, Father.